0: This is the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. It's great to see you guys today. Last week we kicked off a new series that we're calling a theology of sexuality and we talked last week about how lots of times these topics get us all that they get us all tense or a little anxious but you guys did a great job last week uh, not making this make you all tense we had fun with it let's do that again today can we do that yes this uh, its at least half of you, and I'm just proud of you for coming back. I thought at least a third of you guys were never coming back, and so I'm glad that you're back. So last week we talked about introducing this series about how we have to figure these things out. We have to get these issues of sexuality right in our lives and in our heads, because there's really nothing in our lives that have the same potential for joy uh, and beauty, but also for pain and for brokenness. And how these things we're talking about aren't simply about sex, but they really are are these root issues in our life, issues about our, uh, uh, issues of authority, who's in charge of our life, issues of identity, who am I really, where's my meaning found, and then these, this direct connection we see in Scripture, but between the, the uh, of how sex is meant to be this beautiful picture of God's covenant forever faithful love for us. And so ultimately, our understanding of sex and sexuality ultimately affects our understanding of God and the gospel. And and listen, these few weeks, are are, we're going to look at some sensitive topics, and our hope is that as we examine what the scripture has to say, that that talking about these things would not cause pain or shame, But, but rather as we talk about these things. And for some of us, these, these topics may cause feelings of pain or shame to, to resurface in our lives. Um, and, and for some, there may be feelings of pain or shame or hopelessness, but that we would all come out of this feeling closer to Jesus and the grace and the hope and the healing that he can bring to us as we take to him any feelings of pain or shame that we might have. And so today, uh, I wanna talk to you about this whole idea of lies that we believe. I I really believe that, that most of the pain that we experience in our lives is directly related to things that we believe about life that just are not true. They're related to these lies that we believe, and I believe that there's probably no area of our life where this is more true than when it comes to sex and sexuality. And so today what I want to talk to you about is I want to share with you four lies that we believe about sexual sin and brokenness. If you have your Bibles, go over to Matthew chapter 5. Here's lie number one. Sexual sin and brokenness is for other people. Christians, and I think people in general, love to make a big deal about other people's sin and brokenness and a small deal about our own. And so many times we, we, we have this thought that really, well, those people over there are sinners, and those people over there have sinned sexually or have se- sexual brokenness. But really, at the end of the day, Jesus is crystal clear that all of us ha- have sinned sexually, all of us have areas of sexual brokenness, that, that none of us is batting a thousand in this area. So Jesus is kicking off his ministry, Matthew 5, 27, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, it's a verse you may be familiar with, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting from Old Testament law. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What Jesus here is saying is he's telling this group of people who thought they had it all together. They were a bunch of church people that thought they had it all together. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying, none of us have it all together. None of us, none of us are without sin in general. And specifically, none of us are without sexual. Sin. Even those of us that haven't acted on it physically in our minds and in our hearts, all of us ultimately find ourselves that, that we have sinned sexually. There's measures of sexual brokenness. Another beautiful picture of this you might be familiar with in John chapter 8 and verse 3. There's this woman that's been caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus. And see here, John 8, 3 says, so the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Strangely, the man is nowhere to be found. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They're trying to trick him. They were using his question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but then Jesus bent down and starting, started to write on the ground with his finger. None of us know what Jesus is writing, although I would love to know. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who was without, without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older and wiser ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, "Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave, leave your life of sin. And so what we see here is, is Jesus it says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And I believe that we don't know what Jesus is writing in the sand. I think it's possible that, that he's writing Bob. Looked at porn last night. Jim, cheating on his wife last five years. You know, it's, I I believe he, and then so the older ones who maybe had more stuff in their memory of their sins or maybe were just smart enough to know, this is only going to get worse if we stay here. They leave. But Jesus is crystal clear that, that, that when it comes to sin in general, when it comes to sexual sin in particular, that none of us find ourselves batting a thousand, none of us find ourselves without it. And, and, and so all of us have measures of sexual sin and brokenness as a result of the broken world that we live in. Some of us have experienced, you know, I, I remember the first time I ever saw pornography. I was, uh, it was my 10-year-old birthday party. So we had all all these friends over from the Christian school I went to and the church we all went together. And we're just out playing in the neighborhood and we're down by the creek bed and lo and behold, there's a Playboy there. For the next five years, I thought, will there be another? (laughs) One of my friends felt the need to run home and tell my mom right off the bat, she then felt the need to tell every parent as they picked up these kids, I'm sorry, your son has been exposed to pornography. It was a super weird birthday. and. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes it, we weren't out looking for it at 10 years old. We didn't even know that we should be, could be. Should be, should be is the wrong word. And uh, <laughs> it was just a broken world. We just, you know, and so some of it's just the broken world. That we live in, some of its sins we've committed, some of it's the sins that have been committed against us. Uh, next week we're going to talk about how do we deal with and and heal from any sins in this area committed against us. It's going to be a powerful day. You don't want to miss it. But today I want to talk to you about the sins that that we have committed sexually, be it matters of generic lustful thoughts or or pornography or pre- or extramarital sex, or using even using sex as a tool for manipulation or as a weapon in your marriage. Today, I want to talk to you uh, about just uh, these these sexual sins that we've committed. And the first thing I have to realize is that we've all committed some, that all of us have measures of sexual sin and brokenness. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. Uh, Here's a way I would describe it Sexual center brokenness is anything, we talked last week about how ultimately the sexual union between a husband and wife is meant to be this picture of God's faithful forever covenant love. And so sexual center brokenness is anything that blurs the ultimate imagery of what sex is all about. Sex, the man and woman uniting together physically in marriage, the two becoming one flesh and a lifelong faithful covenant love of fully giving themselves to one another in every way. In this picture of God's forever faithful covenant love for us in which he fully gave himself for us and to us so that we might be forever united to himself. Anything which makes that reality less clear in our lives is less than God's best for us sexually. So I, I heard a message by a pastor named J.D. Greer where he was talking about how, how most people in their lives either tend to undervalue sex or overvalue sex. See, how, how, ways that society encourages us to undervalue sex is society wants us to think that sex is just physical That it's like any other physical impulse and so if you're hungry and want food you eat and and it's just this physical act. In fact, people at the church at Corinth, we see a passage later, they were having the same idea of of it's just physical and just like, like you're gonna be hungry for lunch later and you're gonna grab some food. It's just it's just physical. It's it's like food or like sport. You find something you enjoy and then you play it like any other sport, it's just physical. It's, and so, in that sense, we undervalue sex and it really becomes far less than it's meant to be. And I think in our hearts, I think we know it is more than just physical. Here are questions that are, if it's just physical, why is rape so much more harmful to a woman than simply being beat up in another way. We know it's more than just physical. Why is it that when a child is sexually abused that, that the wounds from that linger with them throughout their life in meaningful ways of, and, 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 until they go through a real process of, of healing and restoration? It's because it's something more than just physical. There's, there's nothing, uh, there, there's something more about it. Why, why are people's greatest regrets usually something sexual. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm, a, I'm about to tell you something that I've never told anybody, they're either about to tell you something that could send them to prison or something to do with their sex life. It's, we know that it's, that, it's, that it's more than just physical, but society would say, undervalue it. It's just something you do with your body. You just give in to an urge in order to have an enjoyment. There's nothing else really to it. And, but society wants us to undervalue sex, but it also wants us to overvalue sex. See, one way that we overvalue sex is we too highly prioritize beauty and sex and sexiness and and, and to and undervalue character. Now, I'm not, listen, I, I, I don't think anybody should get married to someone that they're not attracted to physically, but that shouldn't be the only thing you're looking for. And so our society overvalues that. But I think another thing, the way that society overvalues sex, is that we be, we believe this lie that we think that our life cannot be filled with joy and life cannot be meaningful if I am not in a romantic relationship. If you ever known somebody, maybe you are this somebody that that. And I probably was like this a little bit as a teenager and young adult. That uh, that you know you, you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're like. Well, I I need to be in another relationship in the next couple of weeks at least. But it's one thing to be a stupid teenager. Not that y'all are stupid just because you're teenagers. There's other reasons. Um, And so uh, um, it's, uh, but some people never grow out of that. And it's just, I've got to be in a relationship, and I've got to be in a relationship, and I've got to be in this romantic relationship, and, and that it's filling this, to fill this hole on the inside that it'll never fill. Puts incredible pressure on the other person to fill that they will not ultimately be able to do in the long term. But we, have, we believe this lie that we think that life can't be filled with joy and can't be meaningful if I'm not in a romantic relationship and have an, an out-of-this-world sex life. And, and there's just people that would, dis, listen, those things can be great gifts, But there were people that would meaningfully disagree. Pope Francis would disagree. Mother Teresa would disagree. Famous figures like Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, Dom Perignon, who the Great Champagne was named after, who actually was a monk, Sir Isaac Newton. The Apostle Paul would disagree. Jesus Christ, who lived the most joy-filled, most meaningful life of anyone that's ever lived, did so without a romantic relationship or a sex life at all. And so there's this ways in which most of the time we fall into one of two camps, or maybe just from day to day, we go from one camp to another where we undervalue sex. We're like, oh, it's just a physical act and who I do it with and when I do it, and it's really not, doesn't really matter because it's just a physical thing that really doesn't matter, it's not really my whole self. And, or we overvalue it and think I can't, there's no way I can be happy if I'm not in this romantic relationship with this great sex life. There's no way that life can be meaningful and fulfilled. And and, and both of those things are are, are not true. So lie number one is this lie that sexual sin and brokenness is for other people. Lie number two is that my sexual sin will not harm me. Some people say, well, hey, well, whatever two consenting adults do, it's up to them, as long as no one's getting hurt, no one's getting harmed. And, 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 but the fact of the matter is, my uh, sexual sin ultimately hurts people. We see Genesis chapter three, one of the devil's favorite lies is that sin isn't going to harm you. We see it in the garden. It says, now the serpent, the devil, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the, from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And then here's what the devil says. You will not certainly die. Now listen, before we sin, the devil loves nothing more than to make our sin seem like no big deal. He, says, he tells our first parents, this is not going to hurt you. Sin is not going to hurt you. We see in First Corinthians 6, verse 12, I mentioned this passage a minute ago. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything's beneficial, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. He's saying to these people that say, hey, it's, it's just physical, it's just your body, just have fun. He's saying it's, he's about to tell us there's more to it than that. He says the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and for the Lord, for the, the body, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. What he's saying is there were some people that, that were, were, were diminishing the importance of our bodies in general. And they're like, ah, oh, it's really just our spirit that matters. Our body really doesn't matter. And, and, and what Paul is saying is, is this body that you have, this same body, will one day be resurrected. Now, is it gonna be resurrected and perfected? Yes, but it's still gonna be you, and it's still gonna be this body that has been raised from the dead and has been resurrected and perfected. But what he's saying is, he's saying, your body matters, is what he's saying. He said, he said, but by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? He's this idea that that this sexual union is for the purpose of uniting. Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said the two will become one flesh. Quoting Jesus, quoting quoting from Genesis. But whoever's united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So here's what Paul's saying. People say... One of these, the book I'm coming out with super soon of dumb stuff Christians say. Chapter one, all sins are equal. I told you before, if all sins are equal, focus on the funnest sins. Now all sins are equal in our ability to separate us from God and put us in a desperate position of a need for a savior. But all sins are not equally damaging in your life. That gossip that you shared in the bathroom on your way in, and it was a sin. It's enough to separate you from God, put you in a need of desperate need of Jesus' death in your place and resurrection on your behalf. But it, is, it did not damage you in as great a way as some other sins in your life might. So what Paul here is saying is, is, listen, all sin has the potential to damage us, but there is this potential for, for an even greater harm that comes to us because we're sinning with and against our own body when we sin sexually. There's this potential for greater hurt. And here's the thing, we don't need Paul to tell us this. Your experience has told you this. Friends of yours have shown you this. And so, but we believe this lie that says my sexual sin will not harm me. One lie we tell ourselves is a little porn won't hurt me. It's been proven that porn, lose, porn use lowers sexual satisfaction. The more porn you watch, the less you will enjoy sex. Some people even report watching so much porn that they're, they're not even able to become aroused with an actual real woman. Porn, but it's been shown that the more porn you watch, the less sexually satisfied you will be. You are harming yourself. Porn use increases loneliness. It's been shown that the more lonely you are, the more prone you are to watch porn, and then that simply makes you more lonely. The more porn you watch, the more lonely you become. Porn use increases loneliness and it makes sense that it would increase loneliness because what you're doing is you're taking a God-given desire that is for the purpose of, of, of human love and connection and faithfulness and, and then you're just making it all about you and your computer and, and so it, of course it makes you lonely. Makes you, it's, porn use causes loneliness. Porn use, odds up divorce, men and women that in the course of their marriage begin utilizing porn, their odds of divorce go up by, by double. So it's easy to say, well, how's a little porn going to harm me? Well, it is going to harm you It's going to cause you to enjoy sex less. It's going to cause you to feel more lonely. It's going to up your odds of divorce. It's, it's don't believe the lie that the devil's been telling since the beginning of time that you will not be harmed by your sin. Another common thing people believe is they say, well, why buy when you can rent to own cohabitation? They say, well, I don't, I, my parents got divorced and their parents got divorced and the marriage looks like, a, goes bad for a lot of people, so let's just, let's just live together and then one day, if it makes sense, we'll have a big party and make it official and, and, and but listen, Psychology today, I'm not talking about Christian stuff here. This is psychology today. Premarital cohabitation, living together, has increased significantly, and more than 70% of U.S. couples now cohabit before marriage. The major reason supporting premarital cohabitation is that it enables the couple to get to know each other better and see whether they they get get, get along well enough to embark on marriage. However, psychology today, this isn't preacher stuff here. Counterintuitively, many studies have found that premarital cohabitation is associated with increased risk of divorce, a lower quality of marriage, poorer marital communication, and higher levels of domestic violence. Jonathan Grant, in his great book, Divine uh, Sex, refers to cohabitation as subprime commitments, kind of playing off the subprime mortgage crisis. He says these are high risk commitments with little to no collateral. Much like a subprime mortgage, these relationships are designed to fail, with only one in five cohabitating relationships ending in marriage, and then those that do get married, their odds of divorce go up as a result of the cohabitation. See, we tell ourselves, I can, I can live on my own terms sexually, and it's not going to hurt me. But the statistics, not from Christians, but just from psychology today, would say, no, it's, it's going to hurt you. The same is true, just any sort of sex outside marriage. Repeated sexual experiences with multiple partners before marriage is shown that it both hinders marital satisfaction and that it increases the odds of infidelity in marriage. So the devil's been saying this, this same lie from the beginning of time. Your sin's not going to hurt you. And I think there's no way where that he lies more frequently than to say your sexual sins aren't going to hurt you. But the data says it definitely will hurt you. Here's the third truth. Lie number three, God is holding out on me. I think we have this basic fear in life that if I give, give God control of my life, he's going to really jack it up. Anyway, I think we have, and we, we, we obviously have that fear because we don't give God full control of our life. I remember when I was a teenager, and was beginning to feel like God wanted me to surrender my life to full-time ministry, and my, it, my, my instinctual 17-year-old thought was, well, if I do that, he's going to make me be a missionary to somewhere terrible, and they're going to probably eat me. That was kind of like... That if I give God full control of my life, he's going to for sure do a worse job managing it than I'm going to do, which is the most prideful, ignorant, silly thought we're capable of. But we have these thoughts that drive so many decisions in our life, and I believe we have this thought that that is, if I fully surrender my whole life, including my sex life to God, then he's going to mess up my life because he's holding out on me. It's the same lie the devil told our first parents. Let me show you. Genesis uh, three, verse five. He says, for after that verse we read a moment ago, this is the devil still talking. He says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Knowing good and evil What the devil there is saying is he's saying God knows that if you eat that fruit That, that, that it's, your life's going to be better You're going to know more, you're going to be like him God's holding out on you God's intentions towards you Are not for your flourishing and for your good But actually he's evil and bad And he's holding out on you He doesn't want you to experience the fullness of joy I believe there are these two reasons Why, why we tend to have these kinds of thoughts I think well, we're going to get back to that one in a minute I think part of it is historically, the church has not talked well about sexuality. Historically, the church has done a great job of making sex sound terrible, with attitudes like, sex is evil and dirty and wrong, and then, well now that you're married, do that evil and dirty and wrong thing over and over. I mean, it's just super confusing. I remember as a teenager in youth group, our youth pastor uh, talking about going to second base as heavy petting. And I was like, well, man, now he's turned like making out with your girlfriend into like going to a petting zoo. It just feels all weird. <laughs> heavy petting? Another. It's gonna be in my book of like weird stuff Christians say. Just sounds weird, heavy petting. Well, when does it turn from light petting to heavy petting? And, and it's just weird. Anyone else have like a weird church like that? it kid? All right, one of y'all praying for you. And uh, so historically, the church has just not done a good job talking about the fact that, that God is the creator of sex. He's pro-sex. The Bible is clearly pro-sex. And, and, and that, yes, he wants us to enjoy this beautiful gift uh, uh, his way. And, and, but historically, the church has not done a good job talking about it. But then secondarily, this is the devil's oldest and favorite lie, that, that God is holding out on us, and, and that if we live life under God's plan and God's way, that it's going to lead, lead to joylessness, that I'm going to be missing out, and it's just not true. In that, uh, that same book, Divine Sex, Jonathan Grant says, sin is destructive because it undermines the good that God has for us. Not because it's forbidden candy that a cruel father keeps under lock and key. This is the age old temptation that Adam and Eve swooned under in the garden, wondering whether God really does want what is best for us. Yet this truth sits at the heart of our faith. The Christian view of sexuality is an aesthetic vision of human flourishing just as it is one of sacrificial self-denial. What he's saying there is he's said like, God's not holding out on you like some mean father, but but because he's a good father that wants your good, that, that he, he has a path for you to experience joy and flourishing, that's his heart for you. And, and again, the data shows us this. Contrary to popular opinion, whenever you're watching TV and there's some sort of a hot, steamy, romantic relationship, How often is it like a middle-aged married couple? (laughs) Like never. (laughs) Contrary to popular opinion, married couples statistically don't have worse sex than singles, but better. In this groundbreaking study, the case for marriage, Linda J. Waite, Maggie Gallagher point out that 40% of married people have sex twice a week. So what's happening right now, every married couple in the room is like, we above average? We below average? Are we average? Everyone's like, people are getting calculators out and we'll carry the five and square root and, all right. Some of that is age-related. I heard this terrible thing, I don't think it's true, I didn't do it, but I I heard that this stupid thing when I got married that uh, if the first year of your marriage, every time you have sex, um, you put a quarter in a jar and then after the first year of your marriage, every time you have sex, you take a quarter out of the jar, you'll never run out of quarters. <laughs> Pretty sure it's not true, but it sounded terrifying. <laughs> but the data says no. In fact, the, the data says the longer you're married, you might have sex less, but you'll have better sex. Um, he says in the groundbreaking, anyway. And so 40% of married people have sex twice a week compared to 20% of single and cohabitating men and women. Over 40% of married women said their sex life was emotionally and physically satisfying compared to 30% of single women. 50% of married men are physically and emotionally content versus 38% of cohabitating men. A survey of sexuality conducted jointly by the University of New York, Stony Brook, and University of Chicago called the most authoritative ever by U.S. News & World Report found that of all sexually active people, the most physically pleased and emotionally satisfied were married couples. The myth of our culture is that the single life is a life of great sex and the height of pleasure, but that is a lie. He goes on to say, Sex in America reported that married sex beats all see what we see is this idea that God's path God's design leads to our joy and flourishing and I think part of the reason is is that, that 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 God's intent for for the sex inside marriage is that it would be so great anything here's a great policy anything that God compares himself to is supposed to be great and we saw last week in Ephesians five, he was like, it's a mystery, this, this marriage thing, this husband, wife, one flesh thing. He says, it's this picture of God, his love for us. It's a mystery, it's beyond comprehension. Anything that God compares himself to is supposed to be great. That's why if I go to a restaurant and the bread is subpar, I get this righteous indignation. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. That means bread's supposed to be awesome. Don't give me any subpar bread. And the same is true with our sex lives. It's supposed to be great. Here's the last thing we're done. Lie number four my sexual sin cannot be forgiven. The fourth lie we believe about sexual sin and brokenness that my, my sexual sin cannot be broken, it cannot be forgiven. There's some of you. That, that through the course of this marriage, this message ha, have just been like, gosh, you don't know what I've done, and you're feeling all this guilt and this shame and this regret, and, and there's this feeling like, well, that's the area. God could forgive all the other stuff, but I don't know if he could forgive this stuff. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says this. He says, don't you know that, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, you guys, were all, all of y'all were on these bad lists. And he says, and that is what some of you were. I sort of think Paul wanted to write, that's what pretty much all you guys were. But you were washed. You've been made clean. You were sanctified, You've been made holy. You were justified, just as if you'd never sinned. You've been made right with God. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, here's the truth. Here's what the devil loves to do he loves to minimize our sin before we do it. Oh, that's no big deal. It's not going to hurt you. It's okay. And then after we do it, because the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. What the, the devil loves to do is to remind us of our sins that we've turned from, confessed, God's forgiven, he's taken away. And he loves to minimize our sin on the front end and maximize our sin on the back end, bringing this kind of shame that, that won't go away. But, but, but here's the thing. It's God, there's, there's nothing you've done that, that he can't forgive. There's no thought you've had that, that he can't forgive. There, there's no act you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, that, that, that he can't forgive. That, that there, It's a lie to believe that, that God can't forgive my sexual sin. But, what, but the step, first step is for me to give God my sexual sin, to take it to him and to say, God, I'm, I don't want to keep living life, and especially my sex life, on my own terms, where I'm in charge. Because I recognize that, it, that it's, it's not your way, it's not your plan, it's not helping me, it's only harming me. And so, God, I, I want to give you my whole self, including my sexuality. And so, what might that look like for some of you? What does giving God your sexual sin look like? Some of you might need to get help with your porn habit. You just might. If, if you've tried to stop and you're unable to stop, then you might need some help. There's a great website, puredesire.org. At Life Church, from time to time, we offer live and in-person groups to help people with various areas of addiction, addiction included. We're not offering any of those live groups in this moment. There are some that are in the middle of of their time. But on puredesire.org, you can join an anonymous online group at any time. They're starting up all the time. You can go to puredesire.org. Some of you might need to get help with your porn habit. Some of you um, are in a relationship that is not honoring God. You've been thinking about it this whole message. This whole message. You're like, yes, we're. And, and, and you need to wrestle. You need to enter into a season of wrestling like, is this just fun or is this forever? Is this just fun or is this forever if it's simply fun? And you don't have intentions, or the other person doesn't have intentions of committing their life and future. If you don't have intentions of committing your life and future to them, or they don't to you, either because you're like, hey, this has been fun, but they're not really marriage material. For whatever reason, you might be right, you might be wrong, but it's how you see it. Or or you're simply like, hey, I'm just not, I'm not in a phase of my life, or they're not in a phase of their life, or either of us are, are ready to enter into lifelong covenant. And so if you're in a situation where you're in a relationship that's not honoring God, and you're like, hey, this isn't forever, this is just for fun, you're in a situation where you've, you're, you're going to have to decide, am I going to honor God with my sex life, recognizing that his plans for me are better than mine? Even if it means stopping this relationship that's not honoring him, although it is lots of fun, and you're going to have to just wrestle, because that's what it would mean for, for you to give God your, your, your sex life if, if you're in a relationship that's not honoring him, and you know this is just fun, it's not forever, then, then, then the sooner you end that and begin to honor God sexually, the better your life is going to be. And then others of you are in a relationship that's not honoring God and you're like, I really think this could be forever, that you really love each other, and you both love Jesus. You've fallen into, in, into some sin, and and but but you both love Jesus, and, and you're at a spot where, where you could imagine making this kind of forever commitment of, of not just giving yourself to each other physically, but giving yourself to each other completely, spiritually and emotionally, physically, financially, where you're saying, hey, we're all in on this together. I'm, I'm ready to enter into this relationship or, or move towards this relationship of lifelong covenant faithfulness. I, I would encourage you, if you feel like it could be forever, to stop playing married and begin to take some steps towards getting married. After Easter, uh, you can you can take steps towards that in lots of ways chat out with one of our pastors or seek out a professional counselor to do some pre-engagement or premarital counseling. Our staff does some of that. Um, a- after Easter, we're going to be hosting a premarital uh, preparation weekend, a, 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 a seminar and conference on a Friday night and Saturday here at the church. But, but listen, if you're in a relationship that's not honoring God and you feel like it could be forever, like, I really love this person. I don't just wanna give him my body, I wanna give him my whole self and my future for better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness and health, and then for you, giving God your sexuality would be to say, you know what, we're gonna stop playing married, but we're gonna to begin to take some steps towards living out in the rest of our lives what our bodies are already communicating. So here's the bottom line is this. There's no thought that you thought that is beyond the grace of God. And there is no act that you have done that is beyond the grace of God when we give our sins to him. And the good news is this, the only one without sexual sin and brokenness took all of our sexual sins and all of our other sins upon himself. And he loves you not because he thinks you're perfect, He has seen your browser history, and he still loves you. Not because he thinks you're perfect. He knows you're not. He loves you, and he wants you to give him all about you that is broken, and he wants to give you all about him that is beautiful. Let me pray for you. So, Father, we do... Thank you for Jesus, the only one, with no sexual sin and no sexual brokenness, that he chose willingly to take our sins upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin, took so much of our sin upon himself that it defined him in that moment, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that no matter what we thought or done, that it doesn't have to define us. That we can be forgiven and washed and cleansed and set free as we come to you with all that's broken inside of us to receive from you all that is right, all that is beautiful in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.